Oh, Andrew. Um, we are continuing our series in the book of Romans. If you have been here, um, you know that we just finished up chapter one. If you've not been here, I encourage you to go to the website and hear the sermons that we uh, went through as we studied chapter one of Romans. As I've mentioned before, Romans is one of the most dense books in the entire New Testament. Um, but by virtue of studying it well, the gift that it gives us is that it actually helps us to understand the entirety of the Bible um, because of all that it processes for us. And so we're going to pick up where we left off. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 and onward says this. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift that it is to gather with your people, to worship you, to come with expectant hearts, to learn from you, to hear from you. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have extended to us through your son, that though we are sinners, lost, you have rescued us, you've redeemed us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we pray you would reveal Jesus to each and every one of us. Help us to see him, to hear him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 1 begins with a phrase that might be triggering if our memory serves us well in remembering chapter 1. Because he says, you therefore have no excuse. If you remember chapter 1 made this really powerful argument that it said that there's no one who is without excuse, that no one has an excuse to say, God is not real, I don't see him, I don't believe in him, because actually Romans 1 says his character, his invisible attributes, his power can be known to all. And so it's making this case that it's not that God is not evident or real, it's that you and I are constantly trying to suppress his reality from our minds, to deny his reality, actively forgetting him, choosing to do so. But chapter 2 makes a crazy shift It's a disorienting turn that it makes, and it's quite surprising because chapter 1 essentially was giving this really broad summary, appraisal of human history, and it basically said that humanity was without excuse because God's attributes and power were clearly seen, yet they intentionally sought to erase God from their memory. But now chapter 2, it turns in its focus And you have to imagine this. These letters were written to churches that gathered in respective cities, Rome, Ephesus, Thessalonica. And when these letters were arrived to the church, they were read publicly. They were read for the benefit of all because this was a society that was predominantly pre-literate. The literacy level was very low. Very few people knew how to read. And so, therefore, the ones that did know how to read would read these letters aloud for everybody. And so, imagine in this church in Rome, the hearers of this letter would have been a mixed crowd. Rome, a city like ours, very metropolitan, very big and diverse. But in particular, the church in Rome consisted of two kinds of Christians. Jewish people who had come to faith in the Messiah and Gentile or non-Jewish people who had come to faith in the Messiah. This is what the church represented. This was what made up the church. And so you have to imagine, in this context, Jews who believed in Jesus, who were worshiping alongside non-Jews who believed in Jesus. Imagine both of those crowds hearing Romans 1. At certain points, both of those crowds probably felt really good about themselves because they're hearing this scathing summary of pagans and Gentiles. And and at certain points, they must have been like, man, like the Jews that believed in Jesus, they must have been like, I'm glad I'm not a Gentile. Wow, you hear what Paul is saying. Isn't Isn't it good to wake up and be a Jew that believes in Jesus? Yeah, man, wow. That's rough. But the Gentiles who believed in Jesus probably had their moments too and says, man, those unbelieving pagans, wow, I'm so glad that I believe in Jesus. Feeling really good about themselves. And then Paul turns it really precisively and decisively and he says, hey, you guys, you religious, moral people, before you feel too good about yourselves, you actually have no excuse either. Imagine the gasp. (gasps) Paul, you turned on us. What's going on? We were feeling real good about ourselves, just Romans 1. But now, Romans 2 goes into some stuff 
that really does some profound surgery on the heart of moral religious people. And so today, if you consider yourself a moral religious person, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm going to forewarn you that it is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to feel sticky at times because God is going to address some really troubling things in our hearts today. So if you find yourself at certain moments in the sermon like, oh, man, this is good. I wish so-and-so was here. That might be exactly what you need to hear. (laughs) If you're saying afterwards, like, oh, man, I know who I'm going to send this sermon because of these reasons, you might be identifying the very reason why you need it. Do you know, this may surprise you, I'm trying to get the actual statistic on this, but some of the more difficult people to help them see that they are unhealthy are people in the medical profession. So difficult for them to actually see that they're unhealthy because every single day they're in the business of trying to help other people get healthy and they know so much and yet the vast majority of them live very unhealthy lives. You know who's really difficult to get through about spiritual sickness and struggle? It's good, moral, Christian people. It's a struggle. I speak as the president of that club. Because I would add some of the more difficult people to get through our pastors, spiritual leaders, you're so in the weeds of it that you don't realize that actually you are exactly the person that God is trying to get your attention. So let's dive in. Verse 1 says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, let's say something about passing judgment because that is a tricky, triggering word in our culture. Um, If if people feel judged, they shut down and they react. They react sometimes very viscerally and very, like, intensely. No one likes to feel judged. In fact, the great theologian Tupac once said... Only God could judge me. Uh, we, we resist judgment. We don't want to be judged. We think no one is fit to judge us. But let's be clear on what these verses are saying and what they're not saying. They are not saying to pass judgment is wrong. You say, I don't know about that. Prove that. What the verses are saying is not the passing of judgment that needs to stop. It's the passing of judgment with the heart thought of superiority. It's judging someone, believing that you're superior or better than the person you're judging. That's the issue. Because actually, it's very unloving to not judge. Let, Let me give you an example. If I was speeding down the street and there's a brick wall in front of me and you don't point it out, say... if. 
I don't want to judge, Chris, but it looks like you might be heading toward your death. You know, but I don't want to say nothing. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to judge. I don't want to make no judge me. Save me. Be honest. Like be like point it out. The issue is not pointing something out in someone's life where they need help. They need God's saving. The issue is when we judge and say, man, I'm so much better than you. And can I tell you, religious, moral people like us, we are very good at that. We do it impulsively, like a reflex. We do it almost unconsciously. Paul is addressing this. He's addressing the fact that these religious people, as they were hearing God's appraisal of the Gentile world, they were judging. They're like, man, I'm glad I'm not a Gentile. I'm glad we're, we believe. And man, look at how broken and how jacked up they are. And yet, God was coming to them and saying, actually, you have to take a closer look at what's happening in your heart. And if you take a closer look, your judgment may persist, but your superiority should disappear. Because what he points out is that God's people, how, this is how we often relate to God's law. We view it as a checklist. It's like, thou shalt not lie, check. All right. Thou shalt not murder, check. We, we, like, we, we check it off while ignoring that you could externally not disobey God, yet internally be an outright rebellion. I know that none of you struggle with this, but if you could just imagine for a moment the horror, if you struggled with this, what it might feel like to hear Paul call you out on this and say, wait a second, don't get too haughty. You have no excuse because you're judging and you're overlooking the fact that inwardly you often disobey the very things that you're judging other people for their disobedience and you think you're superior He's confronting the actual hypocrisy of these religious people. They practice the very things they judged. He's confronting their inner motives. And can I tell you, it's so easy to do this. So easy. Not so long ago, my daughter, my 14-year-old, she was walking through the house and she was singing a song. And it was a song I knew. Because I wasn't always a pastor. <laughs> My playlist wasn't always filled with worship music. And as she sang the song, I said, hey, 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 stop. Wait, 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 what are you doing? Do you know what you're singing? Now, you got to understand, we're not the, we, my wife and I have both had, like, allergic reactions to, like, strict religious legalism. So we don't put that on our kids. Um, we don't, like, search their, their playlist and say, ungodly, godly. You know, we don't, we're not, not doing that. It's not like the, the Taliban in our house. It's not like that, you know. And so, but we do in, in, enforce the fact that they have to think about how does this line up with your values as a follower of Jesus. And we, we, you have to be discerning. And so I was alarmed that she was singing a song. Clearly, she's not discerning the content. I was like, are you a murderer? Are you a drug dealer? Are you in these streets? Because that's what these lyrics purport. And so she's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Dad. And, okay, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't listen to that. And she walked away. 
And my wife was so kind, because she could have done this in front of my daughter. As she walked away, she was like, Chris, weren't you listening to that song the other week? And I said, ah, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I wasn't just correcting it from memory. Uh, it, was a, it was a recent play. And afterwards, I was like, man, the hypocrisy. Because I'm over here judging her for doing the very thing. Now, this, that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there. You, you might be like, afterwards, you might walk away like, I don't know if I go to this church. You know, my pastor listens to music. Okay, so I, I love you. Hope it's been a good time. Um, I'm just being real. This is my thought process. Say, so, you know, I'm more mature. So I could listen to those lyrics and the poison not get in me. I know none of you think like that. I know. I'm just putting that out there. I, as I was thinking about it, I was like, what makes me think that I could, like, I'm somehow exempt? And, and just all the putridness came out. I was like, oh, the hypocrisy. That's what Paul's confronting, the actual hypocrisy that exists in our lives. That's quite rampant. That if we're honest... Even if we have the checklist squeaky clean externally, inwardly, the checklist doesn't always match up. And sometimes, inwardly, it reveals a whole lot of mess. But he goes on, Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 24, it says this, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. No one is exempt. If Romans 1 gave this scathing review of, of Gentiles and, and human history as a history of denying the reality of God and having no excuse in doing that, actively forgetting God, we get to Romans 2, and now Paul is saying, those of you that are moral, religious, Jews that believe in Jesus, Gentiles that believe in Jesus, if you think you have a leg to stand on, and the leg that you stand on is, I obey God's law, they don't, he's putting a hard stop to that. Saying you actually can't stand on that. It's not the secure foundation that you think it is. Because we have all these hypocritical inconsistencies. Again, he's not telling us to not judge. But he is saying, you and I have no right to ever judge with any air of superiority. 
Because when you realize how broken you really are, and that's the problem, the moral religious people were not realizing how broken they really are, how much they also needed saving, not just these Gentile pagans that Romans 1 is talking about, that they were in the same boat needing salvation. And because they didn't realize that, they judged with superiority, with an air of pride. And God is trying to get folks like us, the people that, it's right, that this is written to, just like us, to take a true, deep, inner look at our lives and consider the inconsistencies. Consider our own brokenness. This isn't just touchy-feely or like, let's just become happier, better adjusted followers of Jesus. It's actually really critically important because if you don't know, the vast majority of people who have a disinterest toward Jesus, it's actually not really a disinterest toward Jesus. They don't want to be around us because what we tend to do is we judge, and again, it's loving to judge, but it's also dishonoring to the gospel to judge with superiority. And it's when we do that that we create environments that are not safe for people. And so they say, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about church. We have to address this. If you remember Romans 1, verses 27 to 30, at the very end of that passage, Paul sets out this really packed list of sins that the Gentile world was, was guilty of. And if you look at that list, the vast majority of them were sins of motivation. They weren't things that are just externally observable. Sins of motivation. And isn't it the case but that's where we tend to lack honesty. We want people to assume the very best motives of us. And we assume the very best motives of ourselves. But often we miss that we're so, so broken, so inconsistent that we are actually never in a place to be able to judge anybody with any degree of superiority. I had a friend that is one of the funniest guys I know. He just, you ever be around those people that they, they're not trying to be funny? They just, it just comes out of their pores. And so like, I can't sit next to him in church. Um, because he's just going to get me fired, you know, just, he's bad. He's just effortlessly. And he retold this story that, and the way he did it was so insane, because he wasn't trying to be funny. Told this story of these two homeless guys in Atlanta that were fighting each other, not physically, but verbally, and they were basically both dissing each other as to how poor the other person was. And he was just like, man, this was so bewildering. You know, it was like, they're both poor, you know? Like, and, and they were trying to fight each other on who was more broken and thinking that one had an advantage over the other. 
It's kind of like us. We think we have some advantage because we obey God's law. Yet what Paul is saying, even at your, on your best moments, there's inconsistencies. You're not perfectly obedient. And so the superiority needs to ratchet down. You know, one of the things when I meet with couples, I meet with couples uh, premarital. I also meet with couples after they, they get married. And it's a really, like, redemptive space for me um, because when my wife and I, when we first got married, we really didn't get the best premarital counseling, to be honest. And so I love to help couples kind of get started on a path, avoid some of the unnecessary bumps in the road that we had to go through. Um, but the first meetings is always interesting because I never know how a couple is going to evaluate themselves. And so if you ever heard of the, the, like the five stages of grief? So I'm going to give you like the, the stages of pastoral concern. Um, and so the first level of concern when I meet with a couple is if they give off the vibe that says, we're good, we never argue. That moment, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is bad. This is bad. Because they're normally saying it's really calm and chill, you know, like really cerebral, like serial killer look. No, I'm joking. And so uh, just, it, there's like a detachedness. It's like, I don't know if you realize this isn't good. You're like, you're, it, you should argue. Argument, the goal is not, not arguing. The goal is have you learned to fight clean? But we're good. We never argue. That's the first level. I'm like, okay. This might be a bumpy road. Um, the next one, just as concerning, is I'm good, but they're terrible. And so it's the husband or the wife. One of them is saying, look, everything that's good in this marriage comes from me, <laughs> essentially. And everything that is broken and jacked up, right there, it resides in that person. Not good. Not a good state. This next one, it sounds like it's an improvement, but it's actually not. It's, I'm terrible, but they're good. It's growth to say you're broken, but it's not growth to say it in a masochistic way. Say, I'm the problem. And, and because the, the reality is it takes two to create the situation. There's equal responsibility. The best most hopeful state that a couple could find themselves in is when they say, I'm broken and they're broken. We're both broken. That's not saying that you're not getting every, that you don't do anything right. That's not saying that they don't have something to grow in. That's just recognizing that when it comes to us, we are both broken. We both need help. And that's essentially what Paul is trying to get these religious Jews who believe in Jesus, these Gentiles who believe in Jesus to recognize, hey, it's not, you're not good, and they're terrible. You, you can't make that argument that you have this all together. You don't. Actually, what the gospel is saying is we're all broken. Even moral religious people are broken. And how does the brokenness come up for moral religious people? Is that our brokenness tends to look differently, but it's brokenness nonetheless. 
The way our brokenness shows up is that we tend to think that God loves us because we obey. We tend to think that that lie is pervasive. It's there almost all the time, running in the background. And sometimes it comes to the forefront, but it's almost always there, this idea that God loves me because I obey. And if you think that, then it actually sets you up in a, in a trajectory where you'll end up in a place where you can actually believe the lie that you are superior to people who don't obey. Because you're believing, oh, God blesses me because I'm obedient. You're always obedient? Always? You mean you never lose your temper? You never stray from God's commands? Never? Not even in your motives? I get that you could have a good stretch. Maybe you had a good day, good couple weeks. I'll even give some folks a good couple months. But you're talking about you're consistent, morally consistent, day in and day out. That you, like, you're like this without coffee, without Jesus' help, all the time. That there's no situation that could push you. One of the, the toughest things, I can hold it together in most situations. But do something that tries to inflict harm on my kids. That is a tough space to find myself in because I'll be honest, I begin to think thoughts that literally I'm like, no, Chris. You know, like it's, it's the stuff that comes up that sounds like who I used to be. I'm ready to like exact retribution on other little kids. I'm like, what's going on? This is not healthy. They said, what about who? What's your situation? We all have those breaking points that if we're honest, say, when I find myself in that space, the law of God and me seem to be very far from each other. Maybe you're good till you hit a patch where you feel incredibly lonely. And now all of a sudden, God's memory is very distant. Maybe you're good till you feel betrayed. How could they say that? And now all of a sudden, a switch goes off. And now you trying to be loving and forgiving is a distant possibility. We have those things that create those inconsistencies. And what Paul is trying to say, if we're honest, we're all broken. No one has an advantage over the other, but especially religious, moral people. He's trying to help us to see the danger in obeying God's word in such a way that it positions us to, toward pride, pride toward others, because we think our obedience gives us some advantage over non-obedient people. So if Romans 1 is saying Gentiles, non-religious people that are denying God's reality, replacing him with things, um, Romans 2 is saying moral people, religious people, your obedience doesn't save you because you'll never obey perfectly. If your obedience could save you, that would be good news if you could obey perfectly and consistently at all times. But all you need is that one moment. If you were hanging from a cliff for dear life, 
And if you let go, you're going to plummet and you're done. And I handed you over a rope. I said, hang on. This rope will save you. But just to be clear, this rope only works 99% of the time. There's a 1% chance that you're going to grab this rope and you're still going to die. It's not really a great rope. It's not, it's, you're not really helping me. I, I mean, 99% sounds amazing, but there's still that 1% chance. So 100% is what you need. And, and I know if you're like me, you can very easily go down the path. I'm like, man, I'm kind of like 99% obedient. Doesn't that count? It's just that 1%. Can't, God understands. It's not that big of a deal. But really? That 1% is a big deal. It's a huge deal in the eyes of God. None of us have perfect obedience. So then what is the hope? If your religious good deeds and mine doesn't give us an advantage, but it actually ends up most of the time positioning us toward prideful judgment over others, then what is the hope that God is trying to point us to? Actually, he points us to a profound hope. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 to 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and a circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The hope that Jesus uniquely offers us is a new heart. He gives us a new heart. A heart that's not made of stone, but a heart that's made of flesh and soft and tender and moldable and receptive to him. When we read in the scriptures, when God established this covenant with Abraham, He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to make a covenant with you and your descendants. The sign of that covenant was circumcision. And it's a weird thing to think about. Why would God choose that as the sign that I'm going to be in relationship with you? But actually, if you understand ancient covenants, it makes perfect sense. Because back in those days when people would enter into a covenant, often when they made the agreement, they typically would invoke upon themselves the curse of breaking the covenant. And so let's say they're going to make a a covenant over land, and they're going to sell land and buy land, and they're making this agreement. Sometimes the people, as they're making the agreement, they would, like, throw dust and eat the dust and say, if I break this covenant, may I eat my own dust? And so they were basically saying, I'm going to invoke upon myself the consequences of breaking the covenant as I enter into this. And when you understand it that way, What God was saying to Abraham is, if you disobey me and walk away from this covenant, you will be cut off. I will cut you off. And when you think about covenant in those terms, the cross of Jesus becomes unbelievably profound. Because what Jesus was doing on the cross He was being cut off for our sake. He was carrying our shame, our brokenness, 
the consequences of breaking the covenant. He was taking it upon himself so that you and I, when we put faith in Jesus, what can happen for us now is that he gives us a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart that's been made new through his grace and his love. What Jesus makes possible is that as we follow him, as we put our faith in him and he renews us from within, we find ourselves over time loving the things he loves and hating the things he hates. So now obedience isn't a forced external conformity. It's an inner outworking of a changed heart. I don't obey outwardly to change myself inwardly. God changes me inwardly, and that empowers us to obey outwardly. If your Christian faith feels like, how are you? How's your walk with Jesus? It's fine. Like if If that's what it feels like, then you're probably externally trying to modify your behavior without letting a new heart bleed through you. Is it difficult to walk with Jesus? Absolutely. He was very clear on it. I love Jesus. Didn't mince any words. He says, follow me. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Up front. No small print. He didn't speed through it at the end of the commercial, you know. Up front. Right there. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. That won't always feel the best. But that doesn't mean that your Christian faith should always feel like it's just so, no, there should be a grace to it, a flow to it, an empowerment that doesn't come from you trying harder. It comes from the living God changing us from within. So the hope that Jesus gives to religious moral people is actually the same hope he gives to non-religious people. I can give you a new heart heart that's made alive. I can change your desires, your appetites. One of the things that so pains me when I hear people say, I can't follow God. This is who I am. No, that's, he can change that. He can transform you. You might be hateful right now. You might be bigoted. You might be elitist. You might be just cold and disconnected. That might be the accurate appraisal of who you are right now, but that is not who you will remain if you allow him to change you. He can give us a new heart. That's our hope. And so, as we close and as the worship team comes forward, I want to invite us to do some wrestling with God, to do some business with God as we prepare to receive communion. When you came in, you should have received a communion cup, but if you did not, here's what I'd like for you to do. Could you just raise your hand very quickly and someone will be by to give you the elements of communion. Just keep your hand up if you haven't received it yet. Folks are coming by.
anyone still need, just raise your hand a little higher just so you can be seen. Perfect. Thank you. Could I invite us to stand? Let's prepare to receive the bread together. First Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. That you took our place. That you died as a covenant breaker, even though you never broke covenant. You died in our place. And your word tells us that by your stripes we were made whole. Through your wounds we have peace with God the Father. We remember what you have done as we come to your table. You've made a place for us, your followers, to come and meet you at your table and to remember what you've done. So we come now to receive your sacrifice, to remember, Jesus, your great grace. And Lord, for those in the room that are not your followers, and I pray they would hear your invitation to come to your table in humble repentance and in faith. Let's receive the bread at this time. prepare to receive the cup. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, thank you for your shed blood that you poured your life out. That in your death, burial, and resurrection, we experience atonement, reconciliation, peace. We're restored. We thank you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you that your sacrifice makes that possible. So we receive the cup. We remember what you have done. Let's take the cup together. team leads us. Could I invite us? Could we raise our hands? 
in the presence of God in a posture of surrender. And I want to invite you to really lean in and do business with God. Perhaps you're here today and you recognize that you do judge and you judge with superiority. You recognize there's a, an arrogance, a pride. We think we're better because we obey and we judge others even though inwardly we're not consistent and we have no, no place to actually judge. If that's you, God wants to do business in your heart. He wants to do some surgery there. Allow him to do it. If you're here and you actually believe the lie that your obedience makes God love you more, bring that to the Lord. Ask him to pull that out of you that your, your confidence would not be your obedience, but it would be in Jesus' obedience on your behalf. That that's what you would stand on. And Jesus, we pray that we would receive the new heart you promise us, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, a heart that hears your word, that grows in your affections, a heart transformed by you so that obedience isn't some forced external thing. It's the fruit of a renewed heart. So we call on you for that. We receive that. If that's you, turn to the Lord. At this time, the prayer team is in the back. They'd love to pray with you about anything that you need prayer for. The words that were offered earlier, if those resonate during this time, you can just slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer. Let's worship God together. Let's seek him. As we sing, let's make this our prayer.